Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Hey there. Welcome to Good People, Cool Things. Today's guest is Mark Hartsman, who ABCnews.com once called one of America's leading connoisseurs of the bazaar. And we are proving that to be spectacularly true this episode. We're talking about all different kinds of wild news stories across history. Mark dives into his latest book, Chasing Ghosts, a tour of our fascination with spirits and the supernatural, which just came out last week. So go on and get yourself a copy because it is fantastic, or perhaps I should say phantasmal, as there's just lots of good ghost history in there. But that's not the other thing we're chatting about. Mark has written books about Mars and Oliver Cromwell's embalmed head, as well as several other fantastic things that we don't even touch on in this episode because there's so much out there to cover. We learn how Mark got into all this weird bizarreness in the first place and a couple of fun other outside-the-box things that he's discovered through his research We're also talking about his life as a creative advertising director. We're also talking about his life as a creative advertising director. He's writing these books outside of doing that. So if you ever thought you didn't have enough time to do something, listen up. There's some great tips about that as well. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can reach out joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. I always love hearing from you on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GPCT Podcast. You can support the show as well by heading on over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podchaser, really anywhere you can leave a review, and then leave that review. And hopefully it's five stars because you're getting all kinds of wonderful guests on this show, like Mark, but maybe it's a one-star because you have a vendetta against ghosts. You've got an unsettled score or something like that, and you just can't take it. So in that case, I apologize. Otherwise, definitely appreciate any kind of support from a rating or review standpoint. You can also support the show by heading over to goodpeoplecoolthings.com and checking out the shop. You can wear your cozy sweater. It's starting to become fall. We're getting, it is fall, in fact. We're getting very frigid, well, not so much here in Austin, but in parts of the country where there are seasons, it's getting cold. So why not pick up a nice cozy sweater and you can cuddle up with a mug of hot cocoa. Oh, we're really setting a scene here as we dive into this conversation with Mark. For people who don't know who you are, can you give us your quick little elevator pitch? But can you also tell us the type of elevator that we're riding on? Yeah, if it's, if it's an elevator, it'd be more of a wonkavator, kind of going diagonalized and <laughs> sideways and up you know up and down all over the place um yeah i mean i i love anything that's just sort of weird and and offbeat and you know bizarre fringe uh just you know the weirder pages of history so i love weird history um pretty much everything i've I've written in terms of all my previous books are related to some sort of weirdness in one way or another um clearly uh chasing ghosts uh, covers an odd topic, you know, with with the paranormal and ghosts and haunted places and all these wonderful things. Uh, my previous book, The Big Book of Mars, covered you know a lot of uh, amazing science, but a lot of weird stuff as well in terms of what people used to believe uh, regarding intelligent life on Mars and what they thought Martians might look like, and um, even just weird NASA lore in terms of how NASA JPL got started. So there's always like a weird element. I did a book on Oliver Cromwell's embalmed head, um, written from his perspective. So that was I think clearly a little weird so that, yeah, that that's just what, you know, fascinates me. And I love 
finding out these different stories uh, throughout history and sharing them with people. So you got into this as a kid uh, early on, kind of reading some of these weird stories. Was there one in particular that stood out where you're like, okay, this is something I need to learn more about? Yeah, um, I'd say th there were a couple, I think, key weird people <laughs> that really kind of stuck with me as a kid. And, you know, to this day, the first one I would say is Robert Wadlow, who is the world's tallest man ever. He was eight feet, 11 and a half inches tall. And I used to read about him every year when the Guinness Book of Records came out, the new, you know, when they were black and white, kind of thick, uh, small books. Um, and he was always like in that first section, like he turned to the first few pages and it was a human section. And he was the first of the human always. And, you know, usually every year there'd be a couple different pictures, you know, so it's pre-internet, of course. So this is what you had, you know. Uh, and there'd be the stats, you know, his, his growth charts, you know, when he was five, he was, you know, seven feet tall, or I, I might be a little bit off. I'm just going off the top of my head right now, but, but I mean, he was, you know, enormous and it was just one of those things that like, wow, how I can't believe a human being could grow this tall. Uh, and you'd see the pictures of him next to like his dad and, and, and a crowd of people. It's just extraordinary you know it just really stuck with me my god this this man was so huge and as i began researching him later in life and learned more about him um, i wrote about him in my book american sideshow and, you know you find out that the, the guy died at I, I think he was 22 years old he basically had a blister on his foot which was covered by a brace while he was out uh, at a, a show of one sort or another and and so he wasn't able to quickly get to a hospital the blister got infected and by the time he was able to get help, he had gotten a fever of like, I think 106 degrees. And, and by that point, um, the fever killed him. So basically this blister that caused an infection, created a high fever, and he died from that. And I always think like, my God, this guy died. This man who was almost nine feet tall died from a blister. It's just horrible. And he was still growing. He would have hit nine feet. So, um, so his story, you know, just amazes me. And he was just such a, you know, a gentle giant and incredible person who's trying to live his life the best he could. And, um, but clearly just one of the most remarkable people, um, physically speaking that, that the world's ever seen. And the other one who's really stuck in my head is the elephant man, Joseph Merrick. And I saw that I saw the David Lynch film, the elephant man, when I was probably like seven, which is <laughs> probably pretty young to see the elephant man. And it really like stained my brain. Like I, you know, th those pictures, I mean, it's such a moving story. The film was amazing. And it's, uh, it's a sad story, but a triumphant story at the same time in my mind, just the fact that he was able to get help with, with Dr. Treves. And at the end, he, uh, he found peace with himself. He found a way to be happy, even in under circumstances, he could find, you know, moments of joy. And, uh, you know, again, it's just an incredible case that he had and, and, the things he went through and the deformity he, he had to contend with. It's just remarkable. So, so he's always stayed with me. And, and I guess those two have really helped send me down this path of, you know, oddities in one way or another. Yeah. I remember watching something about Joseph Merrick in, I want to say maybe like sophomore year of high school, something like that, which, you know, a little, a little older, uh, I think in terms of being able to, you kind of, I guess, appreciate more, although it sounds like that, I mean, that sent you down a path. So I, I guess you, you had plenty of appreciation even <laughs> at such a young age. And yeah, the first time I heard about Robert Wadlow, I was a big NBA fan, still love basketball. And 
Georgie Mirasan was always kind of the oh uh, yeah you know the pinnacle of height. Yes, uh, he, was, he was still playing while I was growing up. So seeing a seven seven guy, and then to learn that there was someone over a foot taller than him, right, blew my mind. That's insane. Do you, do you remember George Mirasan in that Billy Crystal movie, My Giant? I do. <laughs> And he was huge in that. You see him next to Blade Crystal, like, my God. And so, yeah, think about Wadlow was over a foot taller. Imagine being seven. I think he was seven, seven. Imagine like feeling short. I know. You know, I remember seeing um, just along the NBA lines. I remember going to, I think it'd been like one Knicks game. <laughs> and and fortunately for me, it was against the Houston Rockets when Yao Ming was playing. And I remember seeing Yao Ming next to Patrick Ewing. Um, at some point, I, can't, I honestly can't remember if, I guess Ewing was still playing then. I'm trying to remember if he was an assistant at that point or not. Anyway, next to Ewing, who's seven feet, and Ewing looks small. <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> it's weird to see Patrick Ewing not looking that tall. Um, oh, but yeah, I mean, height is just amazing. I had the, the good fortune to meet Sultan Kosin, who's the current world's tallest man, who's, I think he's eight foot four now. I believe he stopped growing because I, I think they... Um, they did the procedure to stop his pituitary gland from helping him grow further. So, um, so yeah, I met him in person and I have a photo of me next to him and his hands around my shoulder. And you see like his, his hand is like as big as my head. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. He was just, you know, gigantic. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm fascinated by all that. We're going to need to see a photo of that. We'll drop it in. The show notes. Oh, I, for, can, I can send it to you. Yeah, that would be fantastic. For reference, how tall are you? I'm five foot ten. Okay. I'm you know pretty average. Yeah. <laughs> so solid, solid two and a half feet. That's gotta be. I'm trying to think yeah. the tallest, the tallest person I've met. I don't think I, I remember seeing a really tall Frenchman one time when our family was in Paris. I assumed he was French. He was speaking French very well. So I'm just gonna <laughs> I'll make the leap there that he was probably French, but I just remember he had to be, he was like ducking around everything. And I'm just like, ah, it's gotta be so rough, but also so fascinating. Like you said. Yeah. I used to see, so I used to be, you know, pre COVID I took the, I commuted into New York city every day for my job. And along one of my commutes, I had to take like one train to another train and subways. And there was this man I would see often that just, I guess our times of commuting were about the same. And, this guy was huge. I mean, I would say he was a little over seven feet tall. And some of these pathways in the subway system were kind of kind of low ceilings. And I'd see him like having to tilt his head, getting on the subway, like <laughs> crouching down to get in the subway. I'm like, oh my God, this guy is huge. And you'd see him in the throngs of crowds commuting, you know, in the morning, just, you know, heads and shoulders above everybody. <laughs> it's like, wow, what is this guy? And I wanted to know, like, where is he going? Like, what job is he going to, you know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I would make up backstories for people when I when I lived in LA. I took the bus to work because uh, I, I was like, I'm probably not going to be out here permanently. Let's not invest in a car right now, even though I mean, New York significantly easier to get around than LA with public transportation. Yeah, yeah um, for sure. But I'd see the same, you know, the same core group. I would say of eight to ten people that were also going in from kind of the west side of Los Angeles into downtown for work. And I'd make up little backstories for them. And, I, you know, I hope they're all doing well. <laughs> fun, fun little activity for yeah. keeping, you know, killing time over an hour. Yeah, for sure. Now, you mentioned that Chasing Ghosts, while it's your newest title, it isn't your only one. 
So how do you decide when a story turns into a book and it's not just an article or even just kind of a fun fact that you share with someone? How does it go into a book? I, I guess I kind of get a little obsessed with certain things and kind of start learning more and more about them and it sort of spreads and grows. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll give you a few quick examples and then lead up to the ghost version. Uh, okay. You know, the current, the current book, of course. So with, um, I mentioned this before, I wrote a book called The Embalmed Head of Oliver Cromwell, a memoir. And for that book, I had become interested in posthumous stories of body parts. And I thought this, this is a really fun thing that's out in the world, that there's all these different body parts of, you know, famous people that have been preserved in one way or another, that have traveled about, or they're in museums. And wouldn't it be fun to tell their stories? And in my research, I came across Cromwell's head, which traveled for 300 years. Uh, from 1661 to 1960. And I saw that story. I was like, this is crazy. Like, this is unbelievable. And so um, then I just had the idea to write the memoir from the head's perspective. And wouldn't that be fun to just tell the <laughs> true story, but then kind of fill in some blanks along the way and bring in different bits of history that he would have experienced. Clearly, there's a ton of history to experience in that 300 uh, year span. So that that's kind of how that one came about. And then the Mars book, the big book of Mars was was a really unexpected one for me because I, I never thought I'd be writing a science book. Um, but I was, I started a site called weirdhistorian.com about uh, end, of, end of 2016. And so early on, I was looking for something else to write. And I remembered hearing about Tesla, Nikola Tesla, uh, trying to contact Mars at one point. I forgot where that came up in you know, my readings at some point. And so I thought, oh, maybe I'll write something about that. Let me look up. Uh, some stories on the newspaper archive service and see what I can dig up. So I, I do, you know, some searches and instead of finding Tesla right away, I mean, eventually found it, but, but before I found the Tesla stories, I just stumbled across this story about a man named Dr. Hugh Mansfield Robinson, who in 1926 was in telepathic communication with a Martian woman named Umaruru. And, and this was basically like the headline. <laughs> I was like, what, what is this? So I dug into that, did some more searches around his name and Uruuru, and I dig up more articles. And I thought, wow, this is this is an amazing story. And I got in touch with the British Telecommunications Archive Department. They sent me this huge PDF file with like hundreds of pages of archives, you know, uh, scans of, of memos from the from the 1926, and also uh, two years later, he tried contacting Mars again. He was trying to contact Mars with by telegram, by the way. I skipped over that part. Um, <laughs> so beyond tele telepathy, he tried to use the world's largest and most powerful radio tower at the time, which was Rugby Tower, which was controlled by the London Post Office. So we thought, let's try to send you know, a telegram to Mars. We have the wavelength. We'll, you know, Umaru will have our scientists waiting to receive our message. We'll do this now because Mars is in opposition at that point, which means it's at its closest point to Earth in its orbit. So... Uh, every two years, it's in opposition. Um, so it's it's about 35 million miles to, from Earth, which is relatively close. Um, so so there's all these stories. I mean, the New York Times was covering this story. And, you know, globally, the story is being covered. And of course, we don't hear anything back, you know. But he was claiming that our scientists were too dumb to get the Martian signals and receive them like it's our fault, you know, and that they were laughing at us because we're not smart enough. So that just kind of set me off like, okay. Let me, as I'm researching his story, I'm starting to find out all these stories on the periphery of other things that were going on in that era, other scientists who were trying to contact Martians and all these different beliefs. And that kind of just ballooned into the big book of Mars. 
Um, so that's how that one came about. And then the, the, the new book, Chasing Ghosts, I mean, I've always been fascinated by ghosts and the paranormal. That's just been one of those things that I think kind of comes with the territory of liking the, the world of the bizarre. <laughs> but I had really gotten into spiritualism in the past several years, and I've been buying a lot of books on it um, from like the late 1800s, early 1900s, partly because they have beautiful covers. They have these amazing titles and, and everything inside them is just kind of wondrous and amazing. All these different, I mean, I have a book called Next World Interviewed, which is all these interviews with dead people, famous dead people talking about the other side and what they've learned, um, you know, all captured by mediums, of course, you know, supposedly, but it's just incredible to read these different thoughts. And, uh, you know, someone, someone had these different ideas that they put down and attribute them to these different spirits, or they believe they actually heard them from the spirits. But it was just such an amazing time to think that, you know, millions of people truly believed that we were, we could communicate with the dead and, and we're very confident that there was another side um, and that death was not the end. And uh, I just found that whole era to be really in, an incredible time to, to be alive, to, to think that. And then you have all the mediums who were, you know, creating these seances and having these amazing manifestations, whether it was just uh, a voice or automatic writing, uh, slate writing, uh, you know, different kinds of uh, physical manifestations, things, you know, apporting or uh, uh, spare trumpets, you know, flying across the room, ectoplasm, all these amazing things happening. And it's like, how, how were they doing these things? And, and in the book, I kind of get into that, how some of them were proved to be fraudulent. In some cases, it's a little hard to show what they were doing. Um, but it's, it's an amazing time. You know, people were doing extraordinary things and people truly believed. So that, all that kind of got me going into the, the, the ghost and the paranormal. And of course, that spread into other topics for the book, Chasing Ghosts. Have you gone on a, a significant number of ghost tours? I'm pretty sure I walked by one that was happening last night, which I thought was pretty fitting. I've been on quite a few. Um, Is there one that hand, stands out as a, a, a must see or a must, die, a must stop by? <laughs> I don't know that there's one in particular that's like, <laughs> you know, so much greater than the others. I mean, I, I did one in York in England, which was great because York is such a cool town. It's, you know, it's got so much great history. I mean, York has a, a little street that I, I believe Harry Potter's Diagon Alley was modeled after. And like you walk down like, this looks like Diagon Alley. You know? <laughs> so, and it's got, you know, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years of history. So it's, that was a pretty cool place for a ghost tour. Um, I've done one in Charleston, which is a great, great little town um and has you know that has a good history as well saint augustine in florida uh in new york city a, a friend of mine runs boroughs of the dead and, and she does great ghost tours so i did one at uh at greenwood cemetery which is an amazing cemetery people can go there you should go there all kinds of incredible people uh are buried there and she does one about spiritualists and magicians kind of this topic so that was a, a really cool tour to do Fantastic. I've only ever done one and it was here in Austin, Texas, and I enjoyed it because, I mean, I, I also find that interesting, uh, but I was in between someone that was fascinated, like obsessed with ghosts and someone who was skeptical as hell about everything that was happening. And the juxtaposition of the two was just a delight to be in between. <laughs> and did, did anyone see anything? 
Uh, but the friend and one other person, uh, we went into the Driscoll Hotel in, um, which is a, I, I think probably one of the most uh, well-known facts about the Driscolls that it is haunted. And uh, they they claimed they saw someone by the staircase. Um, oh, that's cool. Heading heading back. Up I forgot. I forgot to, the- to mention one mm-hmm. that I should I should mention since you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I did a great ghost tour of the Mark Twain house Ooh. in 2010. It was the hundredth anniversary of his death. And so they were doing a special program at the Mark Twain house in Hartford, Connecticut. And I, I was doing weird news stories for AOL weird news at that point. So I was covering the events as a story. Um, but the tour was being led by Lorraine Warren, who if people know the Warrens uh, famous, she and her husband, Ed were famous ghost hunters, demonologists. Um, famously studied the Amityville horror case. If you've seen the Conjuring films, those, those are based on the Warrens, Annabelle, of course. So, so they're pretty well known in that, that world. So I got to talk to Lorraine and interview her in advance. And she was giving me chills, raising the hairs on my arms from her stories just over the phone. And then she led the tour. And I was like, if I'm going to see a ghost, it's going to be at the Mark Twain house with Lorraine <laughs> Warren. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Of course, I didn't. But um, I thought I was giving myself a pretty good shot. Yeah, that's all you can ask for. Yeah, be in a yeah. position to yeah, try. One. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Now you're also on top of writing, you're also a creative advertising director. Yes. And normally when there's I when I'm chatting with creatives on here, I always like to ask about their worst gigs. So a musician, I love hearing about their worst shows. I, any kind of, you know, bad book signings or anything like that. But I, I kind of feel like to stay on theme here. What's the weirdest gig that you've ever gotten? The weirdest advertising gig? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, I don't know that I'd say that one was weird necessarily. Uh, for the most part, I'd say I've been fortunate to work on some, some pretty great clients. I've definitely had a few that I did not enjoy, but I wouldn't <laughs> say they were weird. Okay. Um, I don't know if I should name them. <laughs> Yeah, de- definitely don't uh, don't get yourself in trouble. But if uh, if there's a good horror story from it that you can uh, kind of generalize, I mean, one of them was for a, a flowers company that was just a nightmare. You know, the client basically just wanted to write his own spot. And then what happens when you do that is, you know, writing a commercial is it's kind of a fun part of the job. And then when you go produce it, that's usually a, a fun fun part of our job. You know, you're going to do the shoot. You, you know. There's usually some travel involved. I mean, again, pre-COVID days. And then the edit process, all the post-production, you know, it's a, it's a fun process. And, and it, but it's a lot of work. But when it's, your, when it's yours, you know, and, and you're happy with the work, it's, it's enjoyable. And this particular client just made it so horrible. The ad was awful. It didn't make any sense. And we were forced into, you know, producing it. And then I just remember being at the editors late at night, you know, till, working till midnight for days and days, stupid changes from them. And we're like, what are we doing with our lives? Like, this is, <laughs> what are we all doing here still? This is ridiculous. We're all making a piece of crap, you know, and stuck with it. Um, and that was early in my career. And I've, I feel fortunate that I really haven't had that experience again. <laughs> I've generally been very happy with the things I've managed to produce. I've worked on BMW. I've worked on IBM. Um, so some, some big clients over the years. So it's, it's been good. Nice. Yeah. It's always, I, I'm always amazed at what 
for lack of a better phrase, like what hill someone will die on in terms of a, a change in something like that, where it's like, no, I hate this word lava and we need, you know, we need something else to replace it here. And I'm just like, this is what you're putting up a fight for. Like, uh, right. And, and was... how much money is this going to cost to make this change at this point? You know, <laughs> like we've already recorded it. You really want to bring someone back in and, you know, re-edit so that we don't see the mouth moving or something like that. <laughs> you know, like, these, oh, oh, I'll give you one weird thing. I don't know how I describe this one, but <laughs> it was a spot for IBM where we had uh, a, a pretty large cast of about 20 people. And we were doing um, a thing with Dolly Parton's nine to five. And so everyone was doing a different line that we rewrote to be along like technology, uh, the technology world. And we found out after we shot it and, and posted it online, because it kind of ran online first uh, before the TV media plan was going to kick in. And one of the guys apparently posted the podcast that was just sort of uh, gross humor and had had a history of saying bad things about IBM on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, well, how did this how, how did this guy get through? Like, who let him in casting? And so we had to pull it down and then re-edit around it. Like, find a stock footage guy that like kind of matched the scene, and get someone else to say the line. And like, this was like two more months of work on this thing to work around this this guy who just turned out to be a nightmare, you know, because because of the what he did, you know, and then what he had said in the past. More so was the was the bigger issue. So it was kind of like an early jib jab almost where you had to, you had to find someone else to take its place. We, we found like a stock shot of a guy <laughs> who you were only seeing from behind. So then we could put a different voice on top and you wouldn't know. Nice. <laughs> and then the other scene, I think we just cropped them out. <laughs> that was a bit of a weird mess. <laughs> Sounds like you pulled it, pulled it off though. You made it through. Eventually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those two months, maybe not the most fun, but. Yeah, that was crazy. I will also give a shout out to Dolly Parton. We went for um, the company I work at. One of the co-founders turned 40 a few years back. And as a surprise, the entire company of about 40 people at the time went to uh, Dolly Parton's show out here. And uh, we all had Dolly wigs and matching Dolly themed shirts. And she, I mean, she's got to be close to 80 now. So she's maybe like mid 70s back then. Maybe I'm aging her a little bit, but definitely in the 70s. Uh, and yeah. she was she was great. She was putting on a great show. Like, I'm not going to claim to be a huge Dolly Parton fan, but she was cracking jokes up there. She was running around on stage. So yeah, I mean, you, you got to respect her, right? Like, I, it's not like I'm a fan of listening to her music, but I do respect her as an artist and as a, just as a good human being. You know, she's she's a pretty great person. Yeah, she's one of the first uh, first on the the fight against COVID, which is yeah, been... that's right, that's right. <laughs> love us some Dolly, love us some Dolly. Now, a question I always like to ask, and I say it's because it's less work for me, is a question that you wish you were asked more frequently. And I'm gonna kind of turn this into a little bit of a two parter because I like uh, your your thing, your most interesting thing that you've learned from your research. But I'm also curious because you do have to do so much research for all of this. And I think anyone who's tried to do research knows that it's very easy to go down a lot of rabbit holes and get very distracted and kind of lose sight of what you're looking at in the first place. So do you have any sort of tips or advice for people that do have to do research to not get so bogged down in it? Or is that part of the fun? It's a little bit part of the fun, but you do have to balance. I mean, you know, you always have to pace yourself with writing a book because you have a deadline to meet. It's a lot of work. 
And so it's like, <laughs> I tried to write a certain amount every day. Um, and I tell myself, like, oh, and I'm balancing this with the day jobs. I'm like, okay, if I can at least get, you know, a, a few hundred words written every day, I feel pretty good. Um, sometimes I'll do more, sometimes I'll do less, but I just keep going. And, you know, it, it's not like you can just sit down and write. You got to do the research. You have to do interviews with people, transcribe the interviews, email people, you know, wait for them to get back in touch. Um, and then there's just all the, the other, you know, research that you can dig up on your own without relying on someone else. So there's all these different things that come into play. But I, you know, I'll, you know, I'll know I'm going to write about this particular topic today. So I'll just do my research, get everything together, get my notes together and kind of write that out and move on to the next thing. Um, and it, you know, it comes together that way and things kind of flow when you go back and like you, you might find tie-ins with other things you didn't catch the first time and you can go back and weave it together in one way or another, but uh, it, it works out. <laughs> uh, and diff different people you interview, you know, that um, they're going to be able to add, you know, you know what they should be able to add to something. Uh, again, depends on the topic, but one person you might edit might know a lot about um, ancient cultures, for example. So I know like, okay, I'm going to talk to this person. I'm going to get a lot of good information that covers off on this, this, and this, which I know I need more on. Uh, you know, maybe talk to a few different people, get some different perspectives on it, kind of see what you're thinking and what's, what makes the most sense to you with all that combined and, and then, you know, bring it together. Um, kind of a hard thing to describe, I guess. <laughs> um, but it's, it's worked out for me. <laughs> I mean, I enjoy the process. You know, I like what, what is kind of cool is, is you do start researching maybe one uh, incident, one event, one person, you know, maybe a particular medium, for example, and you might stumble across someone else in your research like oh this person's great too okay i want to include this person as well and then you have to find a way to kind of link them together or make sure that it's, you know that's flowing in the in the in the text um, but it's kind of fun when you find different things you know different people you you didn't know you were going to stumble upon and now you've met another interesting person from history to, to include so um i do like that i love when that happens um, and then sometimes you have to decide like okay do i need to you know at what point do you do you not include other persons or events because you can only do so much and you could also want to make sure you're not getting too repetitive with different types of people that might be fairly similar in, in their stories you know what i mean so mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a balancing act involved for sure so what's the most interesting thing you've learned from your research um so i i'd say a, a few things if i could give a couple different <laughs> yeah answers. absolutely one thing i really thought was pretty fascinating and so the book i mentioned before the book covers a lot of you know, spiritualism and, and early turn of the century mediums, but it also gets into ancient cultures I just touched on briefly. But also, um, uh, the last chapter is about science and how we've used technology to try to capture evidence of ghosts in one way or another, going back to like the camera. You know, when William Mumler was producing spirit photographs, he was the first spirit photographer in the 1860s. Um, it's selling these photos that look like there are spirits behind you, and people believed that. The camera could see things that the human eye couldn't, and that's how it could capture spirits and, you know, what a miracle that is. Um, and he was using that for profit, of course, but there have been so many people who've used technology to just try to find evidence. So one thing I thought was really fascinating was a guy in the uh, 70s, early 80s, his name was Vic Tandy, and this was a guy in London who was, uh, you know, he's a scientist, and he was working at a warehouse late one night, and he'd been told that this place was haunted. And that people had seen shadowy figures and, you know, there were stories, all these different ghost stories about the place. Um, but, you know, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go do my work. And one night he brought to the office, to this warehouse, he brought a, a 
a foil. He was a fencer and he had a tournament like the next day or something. So he had his foil on the counter and he'd, he'd walked away from it and it came back and the, you know, the foils are, they're super thin, right? He saw it wobbling back and forth and he thought, oh, that's odd. Why is it doing that? <laughs> and then he starts seeing some shadowy figures, but rather than assume it's a ghost, he kind of, you know, put on his science hat and like thought like, well, what's causing this to happen? And so he discovered that there's, there was a, uh, a frequency called infrasound, which is about 18.9 Hertz that we don't detect on our own. Like we don't notice the sound, but it affects our bodies and it can make things like a foil move. And it was coming from this industrial size fan in the warehouse and it can make the eyeball vibrate. And that's what can cause you to see like shadowy figures out the corner of your eye. Um, and it can also make, just make you scared. It can make you feel these things. In fact, movies are known to use infrasound to enhance the, you know, the, the, the frightening, you know, aspect of the movie, if it's a horror movie. Mm -hmm. So, so he's like, oh, this is interesting. Maybe this is what's accounting for people <laughs> thinking they're seeing ghosts in this place. And so then he takes some equipment to test out, to, to search for infrasound in other places that are considered haunted. And he goes up to a haunted uh, cellar in a cathedral that's from, I think the 1400s or 1500s. And people have been seeing things there in the cellar. And he goes down there and sure enough, he finds infrasound wavelengths going through this cellar. Um, same thing in like narrow hallways. He was finding infrasound as present. So it's like <laughs> all these kind of like paranormal tropes, ghost tropes, you know, were seemingly, you know, uh, maybe caused by infrasound. And not to say that that explains everything. That's kind of what I love. And he said himself, he's like, I'm not saying this explains everything, but maybe it's explaining something, you know, some instances. So I kind of love that in some ways, science has found ways to maybe explain what might be causing some experiences, some paranormal experiences. The same thing was going on with electromagnetic fields. Uh, There's a guy in, in Canada named Michael Persinger. This was around the same time, like the 80s. And he made this thing called a God helmet. And he would put the God helmet on volunteers and they would go in a room, basically be completely sensory deprived, put on this helmet, full, all dark room, um, no sound coming in. And then he could hit them with like pulses of electromagnetic uh, fields in their temporal lobes through this helmet. You could like little dials, I guess he could dial it up, dial it down. And people would have different kinds of experiences depending on what he shot in through the God helmets. Some people thought they saw God. Some people thought they saw aliens and some people thought they saw ghosts. And so again, it's like, okay, so maybe in places, you know, the world is full of all sorts of devices and technology all over the place, right? So the electromagnetic fields are much more present than they might've been in the past. Um, so maybe that's causing some things. Of course, again, doesn't explain everything. And people have been seeing ghosts forever <laughs> since there've been <laughs> humans, there've been stories of ghosts. So again, keeps the mystery um, alive but it does maybe explain a few things, which is kind of cool. Uh, so I love stories like that. There was another story along those lines from 1912, a house where a, a family moved in and experienced all like the stereotypical ghost things. You know, they heard voices, they felt, they felt, um, you know, heard tappings and maybe felt things walking down the hallway, saw shadowy figures, all the, all the ghosty stuff, right? Uh, like a classic haunted house. And a relative comes over one day and says, you know, uh, I knew another family that had similar issues and they had their, uh, I think their stove checked for the gas or something. Maybe you should do that. So again, 1912 and the house was still lit by 
gas lamps, not electricity yet. They didn't have like light bulbs in the house or anything yet. And the gas lamps used carbon monoxide. And so, and I think the heater used carbon monoxide, whatever they had. So they checked it out and they did find there was a carbon monoxide leak. Um, and the leak obviously wasn't lethal, but it was enough to cause, like carbon monoxide can cause like hallucinations and these, these different types of experiences. So when they fixed all that, the carbon monoxide leak goes away, everything was fine. <laughs> so I found, I found all that fascinating where science could, could explain away some instances of what might be paranormal. I thought that was kind of cool. Again, I, I love the fact it doesn't explain everything because I think it's amazing that people experience things that you don't have an answer like that for. There's plenty of cases where like none of that makes any sense and there's still no explanation. So it's, that keeps it, I think, fascinating. And one other thing I'll say I learned that I thought was interesting because it's a fun one is why ghosts wear clothes. And I thought this was, and of course, this is a theory, <laughs> of course, but I thought it was a good theory. And this, this comes from a parapsychologist who was very helpful. His name is Lloyd Auerbach. And uh, he made the point that ghosts, uh, you, you would see a ghost, like if you're, if you're perceiving a ghost of someone that you know, um, or anyone, I guess, that you would be seeing them as they see themselves. And so he had an exercise that he tells, um, he teaches as well. So he has students do this. He sent this to me to do. If you close your eyes and picture yourself, you know, what do you see? Describe what you see. And most likely you're going to describe yourself like, oh, I, I'm wearing, you know, uh, a gray shirt and, you know, um, you know, whatever shorts, you know, what, you might just describe basically what you're wearing, right? In general, but you're probably not going to describe your socks and shoes and, and you're probably not going to be naked. <laughs> most people don't think of themselves in the nude. You know, they think, think of yourself like the stuff you like to wear, like how you typically dress. And if his theory is right and you come back and you are seeing the way you think of yourself, then it makes sense that you would be dressed and that maybe uh, your, your feet aren't showing. That's why, you know, typically ghosts kind of fade out toward the bottom, right? Because we don't really think of our feet when we think of how we look. Um, I thought there was a lot of truth to that, to that exercise. So I thought that was a pretty interesting theory. I like that. Yeah, I'm thinking of, uh, I don't know why this is coming to my mind, but um, the old computer game, Willie Beamish, if you ever played that, it's really, it's a really obscure one. Um, but the main character is like a 12 year old boy or something. And he gets advice from his grandfather who comes in dressed like a, an old railroad conductor, but yeah, has just kind of like a tail that kind of, yeah, fades out. Uh, and no, no feet on that. I like yeah. that theory. Yeah. I like that. Nice, I, nice. I think it, I think it works nicely. Yeah. All right, Mark, you're almost off the hook here, but we always like to wrap up with a top three. And you mentioned weird historian, and uh, I mean, if people if people don't know by this point that you enjoy the weird and bizarre out there. I don't know if this will change their mind or anything. But in any case, I'm still very excited to hear this about your top three weird news stories from all of history. So one of them I already talked about, which was Oliver Cromwell's embalmed head traveling through <laughs> England for 300 years. I just find that story fascinating. I'll just give a little bit more about it since I haven't really said more than that. <laughs> but basically, Cromwell, if people don't know who he was, he was the Lord Protector of England, Ireland, and Scotland. Um, following the English Civil War, he led the charge to have King Charles I beheaded. Um, so that broke up the monarchy. Uh, then when Cromwell died in 1658, he was embalmed and buried in Westminster Abbey. A few years later, Charles II restored the monarchy. So 
hence the monarchy is back as it is today um, because Charles II brought it back. And he was pissed off that his dad got beheaded. So he exhumed Cromwell's body that was embalmed. He hanged it in public and uh, then beheaded the head and put it on top of Westminster Hall on a, a pike. And it stayed there for about 25 years. And then a storm finally knocked it off. It was a, a wooden spike um, with like an iron tip that went through the skull. And so that fell off and someone picked it up a century, um, picked it up, took it home, kept it hidden away from his family till he was on his deathbed. And then said, hey, I got Cromwell's head hiding in like the chimney. <laughs> I think he was a little nervous about letting anyone know before that because that probably wouldn't have been too well received. And from there, it went to a museum and then it just, you know, traveled, um, went from one, you know, passed from one person to another until eventually it fell into a family's possession. They kept it through five generations. And that fifth generation in 1960 decided that this is enough. <laughs> I want to go rebury the head. So the head was uh, reburied at Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge in the anti-chapel in a place that is not known for sure, but there's a marker that says it's somewhere in there. So no one can go dig it up specifically. Um, so I just find that to be just a remarkable story that this head was passed around for 300 years. Uh, and went through a lot of different inspections to try to determine its authenticity, um, which I think it was finally determined. Yes, this is the authentic head of Cromwell. So I love that story, um, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, so I mean, there's so many. So I, I thought of a couple others that I especially love. One of them is the story of Le Petomain, uh, Le Petoman, if I'm saying it properly. It's, it's French guy. His name is Joseph Pujol. And he was a, uh, a, a fartiste. Um, in the late 1800s, he was the most popular act, the highest grossing act at the Moulin Rouge. And he, he farted. Um, this was what he did. <laughs> he had control of himself entirely. And he, could, he would fart tunes and he would do impressions with farts. He might say like, this is the sound of your mother-in-law. And he'd do like a crazy groaning fart that would drag, you know, like, and people would love it. And, and women would be like shocked and they would have, you know, like when their corsets and everything, good boy, you know, uh, and they, they'd have like, doctors and nurses in the in the aisles to like help anyone that might faint from shock from this man's routine um and so the fact that he discovered he had this skill and then was able to be the, the highest grossing act the moulin rouge i just i love it I, I think that's just a really fun story what a great character and then another one i love and i talked about this one in chasing ghost and uh it's just briefly it's a story of lady wonder um, so this touches on the paranormal a little bit. So Lady Wonder was a horse, a psychic horse, like the Nostradamus of horses, who lived in the early 1900s. Um, uh, yeah, like first half of the 1900s. And she, she was known for predicting all kinds of things, including the fact that Truman was going to defeat Dewey. Uh, when, of course, all the newspapers said Dewey was, you know, had already printed Dewey defeats Truman. Uh, but she also predicted horse races. like she'd get them all right <laughs> predicting <laughs> horse races she would help police find missing people in other states this was in she was in north carolina by the way um and so she would this horse would do all these amazing things and people would go there and ask questions you know do calculations and the horse had this giant typewriter uh there's there's amazing pictures that life magazine took they they did a big article i, I forgot when exactly that was maybe the between the 30s and the 50s if i remember correctly somewhere around there but um but yeah it was amazing so she had this trainer and you know the question was like okay so 
is the trainer giving her signals, like incredibly subtle signals and horse, there's been other educated horses in history and they're all fascinating, um, doing calculations, create crazy calculations or spelling things out. And they were taking really subtle cues from their trainer, which is amazing that they can do that. Like, that's just amazing alone. But this horse seemed to have a psychic ability as well. Like it was, like I said, making accurate predictions. Um, so how exactly that was working, you know, if, if it was getting cues from the trainer, that's fine. But then how was the trainer finding lost children or even there's a case of a lost <laughs> dog that was like states, you know, many states away in the South, I think that turned out what the horse said was right. <laughs> like, this is crazy. So um, I love those things. They're like, you know, magicians would go study her. Famous magician went and studied her. And J.B. Ryan, the the guy who that's that's a story I get into in the book and chasing ghosts of it. J.B. Ryan, who started up the um, the Ryan Center for you know basically he created ESP. He created the term ESP. Um, he started up that program at Duke University. So there's still the Ryan Research Center uh, there today. And uh, on his way down to Duke to to start up this new facility, he saw the horse the sign for like the psychic course and he had to stop and like, check that out. What's this about? <laughs> so he studied it. Another magician, um, Milburn Christopher, famous magician. He studied it and he thought he figured things out. Like, okay, if I, uh, you know, uh, I forgot what the term is exactly, but like he might fake that he's writing a certain number. And then the, the, uh, the trainer would see what motions he was doing and, and understand what, what number he was writing, for example, but he faked it. And then the horse got it wrong because he was faking the motion. So he kind of figured out a little bit of it, but it still makes you wonder how like it predicted, you know, 28 out of 28 horse races, you know? Yeah. So again, Lady Wonder lived up to her name and it kind of <laughs> leaves you in a bit of wonder. So I, I love that story. Oh, those are all fantastic. <laughs> good stuff. Well, Mark. It, it is good stuff. <laughs> yes, it is. It is great stuff. It's cool. And that's why it's on this podcast. Because it's a cool thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. If people want to pick up a copy of Chasing Ghosts, which is out now, or any of your other books, learn more about you, where can they find you? Um, yeah, you can go to markhartsmanbooks.com. And that's it's Mark, M-A-R-C, H-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N, books.com. Um, it's available pretty much should be anywhere you go. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, any independent bookstore. Uh, should have Chasing Ghost. Uh, it's from Quirk Books. Um, you can go to the Quirk Books site as well and find out more there. But um, yeah, check it out. It's uh, you know perfect for for Halloween. Lots of yes. good spooky stories. Yes, I'll plan to read it to trick or treaters. Let's see, maybe pick out a few of my favorite quotes at least. I don't know if they'll stick around for a whole chapter if there's candy <laughs> to be had. But yeah, they might want to move on. But yeah. but yeah, but but try it. <laughs> yes, it'll be the the toll to get get candy. Yeah. <laughs> earn it <laughs> good deal i'll also give a plug for weirdhistorian.com because i lots of fascinating things like this this was just a taste of it there's so so many great stories on there awesome yes thank you good deal well my uh, i'm sure you can hear my dog frantically back barking in the background i probably hopefully the house is not on fire you never know i feel like she's usually just barking at nothing so <laughs> We will wrap up, as we always do, with a corny joke. What happened to the writer after he had bowel surgery? What? He ended up with a semicolon. <laughs> Good after today, people.
Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.